All right, so we are in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 to 8 today. Uh, This is our second part in our vision series. Last week, we learned that we are the delighted family of God. God takes us as people who aren't right with him, and he gives us, he doesn't just simply convince us, but he gives us a new heart, and he transforms our nature. We are now people who are rightly delighted in him, and we spend our life growing more and more delighting in the one we're designed to delight in. And not only do that individually, but we are his family. Those people who are delighted in him, every one of them, is a son and daughter of the living God designed to live in his family. So today, <clears throat> in today's passage today, I'm not going to try to convince you to delight in God. I'm not trying to convince you to be in a local church or to be on the mission of God. I'm going to operate on the fact that last week we learned that that's actually what we are. We are delighters of God. And if we are that, we'll be growing that. And we are the family of God. And that's why we should pursue delighting Him, delighting in him and pursue being in his family. Likewise, I want to come to today's passage with this. Um, I'm going to talk to us as a group of people who believe that to be true. So you may or may not personally believe that to be true, but that's the perspective that I'm coming with. Understanding this as we're going into it, that we are the people that actually do belong to the Lord. We actually have been forgiven by Jesus. He is our greatest delight. We are his family. So I'm approaching it from that angle talking about what he has then called us to. So the title of our message today is The Witness of Majesty and Message. It's The Witness of Majesty and Message. Acts chapter 6, sorry, Acts chapter 1, verses 6 to 8, as Mary Rose had read it, says this. And so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, But you receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. Our text today comes from Jesus' final moments on planet earth. He's already done his ministry. He's already died. He's already risen from the grave. And now he's walked with his disciples and those who followed him, and he's taught them for a number of days, and now it's time for him to um, literally fly off into heaven. I bring this to you today because when we're thinking through who we are fundamentally as individuals as in a church, we have to understand our identity. This becomes an identity piece. Last week, we got that we have new hearts. We're delighters in God. We got that we are together as family. And this week, we learn that we are, we could call it missionaries. But I remember when Wes and I first started hanging out years ago, he's like, missionaries? And he's like, so does that mean we all go to Africa every weekend? Or... Um, or some, some kind of bad version I described back then. No, but what is the purpose of us? We are designed to be left here to be God's witnesses. Now, a bunch of us in this room already know that. So, if you're thinking this sermon will only be good if I learn something new, uh, it may not be good, right, for you. But our call is not simply to tell you something new or something juicy. It's to remind us who we are in Christ, remind us what he's called us to. Why did he, when he saved you, not take you off this planet. Boom, tractor beam you right off the place or just let you keel on over. Why do he leave you there? Why does he keep your earthly heart still beating in your earthly chest? And why has he stopped that process in so many other brothers and sisters who are with him now? So we want to just in a fundamental way, in a very basic way, whether you're super, super young or super, super old or super in between those things, We want you to understand 
what our shared mission is that God has given us. And I only want you to understand that maybe to break through a couple of areas for you that might be slowing you down on that, that might be hurting you as you've been attempting to be on the mission of Jesus. So that's the perspective going into this. I want to start off in verses 6 to 7 to look at first. Our first point is this, number one, the confidence of majesty with the joy of message. The confidence of majesty with the joy of message. So Acts chapter 1, verse 6, I want you to notice what they're asking about. When he says, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? to Israel. And he said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. If you remember back to the Christmas story that we were just saying last month, it's a bad guy named Herod. He hears that there's a Jesus born out there. He wants to kill him. Why does he want to kill him? Because he believed, because he heard he's being the savior of the world? Nope. It's because he heard he's a king. A king to be worshiped. That's why you want to kill him. Hmm. And then later on in the message, happens around Easter. Jesus is on trial. Pilate, big daddy in the area. He's talking to Jesus and he goes, so they say you're a king. And Jesus says, you say it yourself. Jesus is a king. These guys here are asking Jesus not so much about his saviorship. They're asking him about his kingship. That's what's on their mind. For most of us, when we think um, about Jesus, and it's okay. But most of us, when we think about Jesus, the first thing we think about Jesus is his saviorship, the giver of mercy, the one who will rescue us from our woes. That's the first thing we think about. Kind of think about it from the ground up. But these folks, for a, a mix of reasons, I'm not saying they're all noble or ignoble, but for a mix of reasons, they're thinking about it from a, a different angle. They're talking about not so much the Jesus that saves, but the Jesus that rules. Jesus holds and claims absolute authority. He's the king of all of humanity. He's real. He's coming back to clean it all up and implement his full and perfect reign eternally. And he's sent messengers before him. We'll tell you who those are in a second. You might know one. You might be one. He sent messengers out ahead of him to inform the world that he is real and that his kingship is coming and that he is coming to, to clean it up and to rule perfectly over it. It's called judging. The message is a declaration, and it's both a delightful plea and a very real proclamation, a warning. A delightful plea in this, come and see, recognize these words, come and see, taste this bread, see this love, behold what manner of love the Father has given to us, come find your rest, forgiveness for all of this, for all of this. This is the part of the joy of our message, it is news that is true and is good and is the goodness offered to the world. There is a delightful plea in the message of the king. The second part is, is a very real proclamation, a very real warning. He is there. He is not silent. And he will reckon all before him. All people, every last soul will bow their knee to the kingship of Jesus. One way in delight or another way in dread. Every knee will bow to Jesus. So I think one of the pr challenges we have for us as people who carry the message of Jesus is we often struggle with a confidence problem. And one of the reasons we have a confidence problem is that we often think that the message of Jesus is simply the delightful plea. Simply 
this good news that you too can be saved, you too can be forgiven just like I've been forgiven because I didn't have a hope or shot without it. And it's 100% true. But when that's the only side of our message to us is that to witness of Jesus means to witness of his love and of his forgiveness. We don't, we don't understand that there's a whole second side out of which amazing confidence grows. We are witnesses of his majesty. He is there. He is real. He is coming. And you will deal with him. Like there are two sides to this. It's, it's, it's amazing joy. It is gladness. It is gravity. Two words that John Piper has made famous for years and years now. Maybe some of the reason a lot of us wrestle with confidence in Jesus is because, well, we almost see ourselves like some kind of like grown-up spiritual version of Girl Scout cookie salesman, you know, or like a really bad school fundraiser where you got these candy bars that no one really wants to eat anyway. Like, and, you, know, you know, the kid has to sell them, and the parents are like, okay, come on, guys, you got to put this box of candy bars out of work. Can everyone, like, hit me up and buy a candy bar off my kids. It's, it's, a, it's a favor being done for us. We're offering something good at a cost to your life. But that's not what God has called us to. Um, we are talking about a majestic one. Yes, we have amazingly good news for your friend and for your family and for your neighbor, amazingly good news. But you also have the news of that he is there. There's a twofold side of that message. The majestic one lives and is communicating joy and fair warning to the souls of this world. And you, will come to the end of the commission, you are the chosen, commissioned channel of that communication to an assigned mix of people right now. Because your assigned mix of people are different than my assigned mix of people. I don't know your people. I know a couple of them, right? Because we mix our lives up, but there's so many I don't know. He's given them. But consider, consider confidence. Like if, if we're thinking through why do I have confidence or what is my level of confidence in this message that I bear? The message is both a, ma- a majestic one and his message of mercy. When you have both of those things built in, there's an amazing amount of confidence that flows from that if it is understood and believed genuinely. But if either side of that is broken, we don't have rightful confidence and we don't have rightful joy. For most of us, we have an awareness of the gladness side. We have an awareness of salvation is good, salvation is offered. But often, we don't have an awareness of the majestic side. Jesus Christ is real. He really is the king, regardless of what your friend thinks about it or not. Your friend will come to reckon with that one way or another. That their opinion of it doesn't actually matter. Jesus' opinion of himself, which is true, that is what really matters. When there's a shift in the confidence from what so much my friend thinks or is convinced about into the reality of what really is and God's opinion about it, there's a complete shift on our confidence platform. It's not, it's not callous. It's not pompous. It's not arrogant. We still plead with them. Be reconciled to God. But we're pleading with them because he is real and he is coming. And we're bringing the joy and the plea saying, please know this. This is a good, this is a good thing. This is the loving king. This is the relationship you can have. This is the forgiveness you can have. This is the new life you can have. Listen to, listen to God's confidence. I, I, I snuck this passage in earlier. Hebrews 12, for the word of God is living and it's active and it's sharper than t- any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. And it is discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give account. 
do you know the passage? Do you believe that passage? Do you hear God saying, look, I am there and I see through everything and all people will give account to me. When God says that and you in prayer respond back to him and say, okay, I then do believe that you are there and I do believe that you see through everything. And I do believe that every single soul will give account to you that shifts your confidence from yourself or your friends to your confidence in God. There's a confidence shift in there. Consider this other statement he makes. Romans chapter 1, verses 9 and 20. For what, this is what God says through the Spirit. He says, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has made it known to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. God himself is extremely confident in how he has communicated to every single person on this planet. He has done it internally in the law written in their hearts, Romans 2.15. He has done it externally through physical things seen, Romans chapter 1. He has done it externally, then again powerfully through what he's revealed in the word of God in Hebrews chapter 4. God is saying he is communicating very clearly, very effectively with utter confidence. What does this look like? What does this look like? Well, uh, it's the difference maybe between like an eager salesman and an excited geek. In a good way. In a good way, right? So when I used to be, when I was growing up back in the day, a geek wasn't necessarily a good thing. Now we understand geeking out can be kind of a good thing, right? It's when someone really digs something, someone really likes something, they find a lot of delight in it, and they become somewhat of an expert in it. In fact, nowadays, I would say for you, when you really want to get the, the intel on something, what you don't do is go to a salesman for the thing. You usually find a geek on YouTube who reviews those things, who has a passion for that type of thing, a passion for that type of product, that type of process, because that person's passion for it draws them. And they have joy and they have confidence in it. It draws you into it. In some sense, I'm saying in a great way, we geek out on the God of heaven. We love him. We're drawn towards him. We go to him. We have confidence and boldness. He's interested. We aren't versus a salesman who learns just enough to try to turn the tables on you. We don't want that with cars. We don't want that on musical instruments. We don't want that on anything on this earth. And we don't want that for eternity. It'll come, uh, Dempsey's going to tie to this in the end, right? He's going to talk about how we equip. Why do we equip? We don't equip with just enough to try to turn the tables on somebody. No, man, we run into the Lord. We run into the Lord because we want to know him, know about him, have confidence in him, and to be able to express that to people in a genuine, heartfelt way of true confidence in the Lord. Likewise, we are proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into marvelous light because we believe it's excellent. We delight in him. We delight in him. Or do we? So out of the, our message is one of proclamation of the returning majestic Christ and his message of salvation to the world. Because our witness is to the returning majestic Christ and his message of forgiveness, his witnesses are rightly marked by joy and confidence, or shall we say a gladness and gravity. Confidence is connected both into the message and the majestic one that we testify to. Look at verse 8, second part. It's a spirit-reliant work. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. Second thing that I think hurts a lot of us, for us as we 
think through about us as believers being a witness to Jesus Christ. First one, we don't have confidence a lot of times in God or in his message. I hope that maybe we just talked about a little bit might address that and might free some of our hearts. And as I was praying uh, for our message today, I was praying particularly from this little portion right here. I'm praying not only that I could convince you, because maybe I can or maybe I can't convince you, but I'm praying that the Spirit of God might through me, a mere man, bring a message to you from his word and that his spirit would then stir in many of us great help today. Not just an incremental change in how we think, but really a help, really a help in confidence, really a help of what it means to rely on the spirit. In verse eight, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. This is a very interesting thing that Jesus says. Uh, Boys, don't move until the Holy Spirit arrives. Now, here's a couple of things you need to know. People had been getting saved for a long, long time. Abraham, saved, saved by grace through faith, right? So, right. So Abraham saved a long time. People begin to come to know the Lord through the Old Testament. People have come to know Jesus, have been saved, brought to life in the Gospels. They will be afterwards. There's only one way that a person becomes saved, because saved is not simply a person flipping their jersey. It is new life right? They are dead. Their hearts are against. The only way that that happens is the Spirit did a new work. The Spirit of God was not created at the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost refers to Acts chapter 2, the moment when the new covenant worker of of the Spirit of God comes and arrives there in Jerusalem. But the Spirit of God is eternal, third person of the Trinity, one being three persons, eternally equal, roles and functions that are different. The Spirit is there in creation. The Spirit is there in the Old Testament. The Spirit of, of God came upon men and women in the Old Testament to supernaturally equip them to lead Israel and give prophecy and help and slay enemies. The Spirit of God then perfectly leads Jesus through his ministry and guides him. The Spirit of God then comes in the day of Pentecost. The Spirit of God then is permanently indwelling all of his people from the day of Pentecost forward, but the amplitude with which he functions is different on any given day. It's not that you are filled with the Spirit all the time. There are days when you are more walking in the Spirit and when you're not walking in the Spirit. That's why the Scriptures tell you, walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of flesh because there's a great chance between lunch and dinner you will not want to walk in the Spirit. And God calls you, no, look at the Spirit, walk under His power. So the Spirit has been on the scene the entire time. The Spirit has been saving people. But the Spirit is going to do a new thing. And Jesus, who is here freshly commissioning His people, says, do not move until you have received the Spirit. Because in order for the witness of Christ to take place by his own design, he's not simply asking regenerate people to carry the message of the Word of God to other people. He's not simply asking that. Uh, my dad, the great theologian Doug Burns, who's sitting in Spring Hill, Tennessee right now, probably in his own church service, should be dad unless you're watching, Uh, One of his favorite verses is in Isaiah 55. The word of God does not return to him void, but accomplishes the purpose for which he sent it. So God has promised that his spirit never lands to no effect. It always goes out and accomplishes something. We don't know the purpose of the word at that given time. And that is the spirit accomplishing that work through the spirit, through 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 the word of God. But what is happening here in the new covenant is that God is sending the Spirit in a new way so that his people would be 
empowered by that spirit in a new, new way in the giving of the message. In the giving of the message. They would seek the leading of the spirit as far as when I speak and to whom I speak and how I speak. And then the spirit, by Jesus' own prophecy, would help them in the moments of time. And so as we, as they, as we would testify to people, he says, don't worry about what you'll say. The Spirit will guide you into what to say. We read his word, we study these things, and like Peter, in Acts chapter 2, when Peter is talking, the Spirit of God is like downloading stuff that he's read from the Old Testament and putting it in his head. He's quoting minor prophets and major prophets. Like He's a fisherman. And the Spirit of God is helping him bring freshly to his mind the quotation of the Old Testament as it was appropriate. He didn't go to Genesis 15. He didn't go to Psalms 2. But he went to these other places, right? Because the Spirit of God is enabling him. And there, a lowly fisherman who has publicly failed more than anybody in the Scriptures has taken it for the team. It's written all about him, right? There, that man in his weakness, under the power of the Spirit, speaks by the power of the Spirit, the Word of God, which is the Word of the Spirit, to people. And then the Spirit stirs freshly. And there are thousands that come to know Him that day. But notice this. Those thousands of people, they mostly already knew about Jesus. This isn't that long ago from when Jesus was killed. And it was no small thing. Jesus set the land of Israel on its ear in his ministry for years. They have been hearing the word of God. They've been hearing about Jesus much. Many of them are participating in the killing of Jesus. But it's not until the work of the Spirit stirs in them that salvation occurs. So half of us sit at home thinking, oh, I could never, I could never lead my friend to Jesus. They would never listen to what I have to say. I'm not smart enough. I'm not bold enough. I'm not mean enough. Uh, their rejection means too much to me. I can't do it. You are right. You cannot do it. But the problem is you're thinking of it as the wrong thing. You're thinking of being able to persuade them, maybe able to win them over. Your friends don't need to be persuaded or won over. Ultimately, your friends need a miracle of the Spirit of God on their hearts. And that is not your doing. That is God's doing. And God is designed for the witness to occur when the Spirit of God would move us, we look to Him, we seek Him, we ask His leading. We are people of prayer, people of fasting. You notice the people, we talked about that in prayer. They're not just chilling, and every now and then, the Spirit dropped in on their everyday Antioch life and said, hey, set aside for me, Paul and Barnabas. They're going proactively because they have a delight in God together as His family. And through that, the Father is then opening up new doors and channels, and the Spirit is making His way clear, and He's empowering through that. You're right. You can't save a soul, but you're wrong because God does save souls. He saved your soul. How did he do it? Did he send some person with amazing thought and an argument or, or a person that bought you so many coffees or a cake or loved you so much that all of a sudden your heart is transformed and you want Jesus with all your heart? No, his spirit comes to you. He brought you his word through a thousand different ways or one and his spirit convinced you and he convinced you by his word, and he convinced you by physical things, and he convinced you by internal things, because FYI, we live in a religious culture, right? I know we're not in an Islamic culture, but we are live in a religious culture. It's secularism, and secularism tells you that the only thing that matters is the proof of physical things, not internal things, 
But that is a secular thought. That is not how God tells us to think. God says, actually, I work by multiple means. But I work through my word. I work through internal testimony. I work through physical things. But what does God does is he comes and brings to his message. And he convinces us. And beyond convinces, he convicts us. And beyond conviction, he brings us to new life. That deeper work, you can't do. You can never, ever do it. So quit worrying about what you can't do. If, if you are stopped by the impossibility by what you can't do, brothers and sisters, I would just say repent from thinking you're the Holy Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit do what the Holy Spirit does. And go under his power. If, if Peter and Paul and all these guys and all the ladies, if they needed to not make a move until they had the Holy Spirit and then had access to him and then moved on seeking the active leading of the Spirit, step out of the way of being the Holy Spirit. Come to the Lord and say, Lord, I want you to work through me through your Spirit. You don't need to go home and lay on your carpet and wait for a second arrival of the Holy Spirit or, or something like that. You have the Spirit of God now in you. We're after Pentecost, okay? So you have the Spirit of God in you right now. But ask the Lord, please lead me. Please show me. Please guide me forward as I stand in your mission so that I will know when and how and to whom and what to say. The Spirit of God is amazing, and he does what only the Spirit of God can do. And a secondary thing, okay, we're going to get to missional community life here, right? Or if you're not from our church, however your church functions, right, in God's family, the Spirit of God creates a new unity. One of the things he does in his new covenant work is he creates a new unity. In John chapter 13 and in John chapter 17, the world, when the world gets to see the Christian fellowship and so missional communities, we want to be God's family in a way that we are not isolated from the world. The world needs to be able to get in and see this thing the Spirit does. In John chapter 13, the Spirit creates a love within us, a new commandment, a love that is so unique that the, that the world is testified in their heart that we actually are from Jesus. And in John chapter 17, the Spirit creates a love in us, a unity that's so unique that it actually testifies to them that Jesus actually is the legit Son of God. And in John chapter 17, the unity and love that God gives us testifies to the world and testifies to their hearts in a proving way that the Father extends love to his children. Those things are given by the Spirit when the world gets to look upon the family of God and find a love in us given by the Spirit that doesn't make sense. It just doesn't make sense. It is a supernatural thing. These people love each other in times when they shouldn't love each other. These people don't run away from each other when they should run away from each other. These people repent when they should be hard-hearted. These people stay together even though... All by er all earthly means, they should separate and go their different ways. But God creates something new in us. So that is one of the reasons that we believe in our missional communities. We're always talking about this is how can we share our lives out together? How can we invite people to come see the fellowship? How can we bring our fellowship out into our individual mission worlds? So the world God's given you needs you. But it also needs to see God's people. So it's one of the reasons we do lean and mean ministry across city and we do missional communities and the DNA's inside of them. And mostly that is because we want us to have time to really care for the world God's given us and to go with each other into that world that God's given us. Not just you, but to bring us. 
and for us to reorganize our lives to be able to be there so that the world can see this testimony of the Spirit because God is relying upon the third person of the Trinity to be the empower and testifier of that mission. The witness work Christ has called you to is absolutely wed to the empowerment of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Do not be stopped from doing what God's called you to do by being stopped by thinking you are called to do something else. Maybe that's a great relief from your heart as you think and pray about that. Our last piece is this, commissioned by the king. Look at verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Um, there's a little progression there. It's on a map. Jerusalem, it's like concentric circles. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth, that's Ohio. So he's saying, you're going to be my, my, my ministers to the, the, the world going through these concentric circles out. This is, when we talk about the commission that God's given us, and here's my claim. You as a Christian are commissioned by God to be his witness until you're dead. Until you're dead. And so if you don't think that, I'd like to challenge that fundamentally. And if you do think that, I'd like to sharpen it a little bit possibly. There are a number of passages that talk about us being commissioned. A lot of different terms, ambassadors. Chose this one today because I think it's a little bit unusual and helpful and gives us some angles on the Holy Spirit and the majesty of who Jesus is. But we found it also in, in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20, which we call the Great Commission. I'll read it for you. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The summary there. And this is probably said at this very same time that this Luke chapter 1, uh, sorry, Acts chapter 1, verses 6 to 8 is being written. Um, these are two different apostles speaking on two different sides of observing this. Jesus is saying in this passage here, as Luke says in Acts, he goes, I want you to, I'm calling you to be my witnesses when the Spirit is upon you. And here Jesus is saying in Matthew, I'm calling you to go make disciples of the people and the nations, teaching, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And not only to do this, uh, well, we, we find in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, later on in the passage, uh, we're called to do this because well, we find something wonderful about him. 1 Peter chapter 2 to 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So as people, as people who are commissioned by God, the disciples, the apostles, us, the ladies, goes down through all history, as he commissions us to do this, um, it is done by word and by deed. I don't know if it's still out there. A lot of people for a long time were really stymied by a, 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 a bad quote of Thomas Aquinas. It wasn't really his quote, saying, um, preach the gospel at all times, and if, if necessary, use words. That's not from the Bible. It's actually not from him either. Okay? That's called heresy. So, so when God tells us to be his witnesses, it involves words and deeds. Words and deeds. I will give you some examples. Matthew chapter 5. Here's deeds. Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 intentional deeds. Now, this is where you got to be careful not to be a, a hypocrite, okay? 5.14, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. That's you people together are a light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. 
Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to in the whole house. And in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So intentionally living the gospel out in front of people, not in a hypocritical way, but openly so that they might see the effects of the gospel in your life, testifying by deed to Christ. And then by telling, and that's why I mentioned 1 Peter chapter 2, 9, that you may proclaim the excellencies of who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Not simply show it, tell it. Proclaim means to message against. Speak it out. So by your life and by your words, the God of heaven has commissioned every single one of us in this room that know him to be his witness, to testify to him. God has brought... God has bought your life and commissioned it to the witness of him and his message. So summary in three things. Number one, you, Christian, are commissioned by Jesus to be his witness. Number two, there is a power and peace in the delightful pleading and confident proclamation of Jesus the King. And number three, the rightful witness will happen as the Spirit is sought by you and he guides and empowers you in the moment to do what only he can do. And sometimes as you are his witness, people will shun you. And sometimes when you're his witness, people will be brought to life. Or a seed is planted. Or the seed planted is watered. And you don't know. And some days you'll be there when all of a sudden harvest is made and a person says, I'm done. I'm done running. I don't want to know Jesus. And it's a sweet day. It's a beautiful day to do that. And I'll walk a person through baptism and like invite them into fellowship and help disciple them and help them grow and thrive in Jesus. That's a wonderful thing. And then some days people are going to throw it back in your face and Jesus says, they don't know you because they don't know me. They hate you because they hate me. It's okay. I'll take care of you. You're my witnesses. You have my spirit to help you. I want to finish my time with inviting you to pray through a couple things. Um, so would you guys bow your heads and just... Uh, I'm going to give you a couple moments after each of these to actually just ask the Lord for help about this yourself, responding back to him. Awareness of the commission. Are you convinced that you are a delighter in God, a clearly commissioned witness by Jesus to be a witness for him? Father, now before you, we ask that you would please... Um, bring your sons and daughters to talk to you about are they or are they not a commissioned witness of yours? Would you pray this? Teach me how to walk in the power of the Spirit for your witness. Father, I pray for us that you would please keep us from avoiding your spirit because of fears, uh, because of confusions of what your word might say about your spirit. I pray that you would please um, do a great work of your spirit to allow us to 
to embrace his work in our life, to seek his leading and empowering. And Lord, that we might really experience the joys of being um, greatly helped by your spirit and empowered by him in the mission of Jesus. And then finally, brothers and sisters, let's talk about confidence, your confidence before him. Father, give me a heart confident of you and joyful in your message. Give me a confidence in the majesty of Jesus. Make my heart eternally more swayed by the reality of you than than my neighbor. Father, please reveal and repeal what I am foolishly confident in. Father, I now pray for my brothers and sisters that you would help each one of them become aware what they are naturally confident in that fills, that fills and um, obscures their confidence in you. Please give us, by the power of your Spirit, new insight on that. And the difference between that and confidence in you, Father, and help them and help me fight false belief that we might have our confidence in you versus our natural dispositions. So I pray for that insight for each of us today. Father, I pray that you would convince our hearts that we are commissioned by you. Father, I pray that you would uh, make our hearts eager to operate under the power of the Spirit and grow in that. And Father, please um, fill us with confidence. Confidence in your glory, confidence in your grace. Make us people of gravity and gladness, of delight and proclamation. We love you, and we thank you for our Savior, Jesus, and we thank you for the honor and the privilege of leaving us here to carry forth your message that others might not know you. In Christ's name, amen.